You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. Well, guys, I have some really bad news for you. My wife and I have been talking for the past few weeks about how much time this podcast takes up, and we decided that after 13 years of doing this, it's time for me to finally step away from it all. Now, you may recall a few episodes ago, I mentioned how I had a couple of years left on my contract. So I have found somebody to take over this show for me. His name is Nick Charlie Key, and I think he's perfect for this show. Let me just give you a little background on him. First, Nick started his career as a high school history teacher, so he's perfect for this. He was working in an under-resourced community school in Cape Town, South Africa. So he has a much better accent than I do. No New York accent. Uh, Anyway, uh, he currently leads a team of creatives and leans heavily on his jack-of-all-trades creative skill set. Over the years, he's been the lead singer in a band. I can't sing for anything, so there's a plus right there. Anyway, he's been the lead singer in a band that has played alongside the likes of Maroon 5 and One Republic. He's published a best-selling cookbook focusing specifically on low-carb recipes, and nowadays he spends his free time researching interesting stories from history. See, perfect fit. The only difference is that he focuses on history of food. As I said, he lives in Cape Town. He's there with his wife and two kids. They're all under the age of three. That's his kids, not his wife. And they have a French bulldog named Napoleon, which I think my wife would love because we had two cats, Napoleon and Josephine, but sadly they're no longer with us. Hold on. My wife wants to say something. April April Fools. And why don't you say that in French? Poisson d'avril. Okay, so the reality is I'm not going anywhere. I'm already working on the next podcast, and hopefully I'll have that done soon. Today's actually the day of the great switcheroo, and that's where podcasts from all around the world are paired up with similar podcasts. And, you know, this is to expose uh, shows to different audiences. So Nick is playing one of my episodes in his feed, and I'm doing the same for him. Now, I should quickly mention that everything I mentioned about Nick is totally true. And I really, really think you're going to like Nick's show. And that's because he kind of does what I do. His podcast is titled The Fantastic History of Food. Now, the episode I've chosen for you today is titled Crazy True Stories About Ice Cream, which I think you're really, really going to enjoy. And if you do like it, be sure to check out the rest of Nick's episodes and consider subscribing to his podcast. Anyway, I will be back shortly. Anyway, let's give a listen to The Fantastic History of Food. (laughs) 
Welcome to the fantastic history of food. Strange but true stories from history that in some way involve food. I'm your host, Nick Charlie Key. Today we're talking about ice cream. We all know it, we all love it. And if you don't, well then maybe by the end of this episode, you'll be inspired to give it another go. So let's go back to the very beginning. Where was ice cream first invented? Well, as far as I can tell from my research, it actually originated in China, albeit in a far more crude form than we're used to. The very first iteration of ice cream-like food was first produced and consumed around 1600 BC when a milk and rice mixture was frozen by packing it into snow. Over the years, it began to evolve, and the Chinese Shang Dynasty ruler at the time was Emperor Tang. He loved the idea of a frozen dessert so much that he had a team of 90 slaves that he called Icemen. They were sent up to the freezing mountaintops to bring back fresh snow, which was then flavoured upon their arrival with ingredients such as camphor and pomegranates that were squeezed over the top. One apocryphal story tells of a slave who came upon a beehive high up in the mountains. Somehow in the story, the honey had not been frozen by the sub-zero temperatures and had been consistently dripping from the hive onto the snow below it. He tasted the sweetened honey snow and he knew he was onto a winner. He gathered up all of the honey snow and made his way back to the palace with his find. Emperor Tang was ecstatic with this newly found delicacy. This was still technically just flavoured ice though, outside of the combinations with rice milk, which at least gave it some form of dairy-style creaminess. Some tales suggest that ice cream was in fact invented in Mongolia and brought to China during the Mongolian conquests, but the evidence is fairly thin on the ground. Throughout the ages, it seems that almost every ancient culture experimented with chilled or frozen desserts. There are ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs that show a snow-filled vessel next to a jug of fruit juice. There are even Persian records from the 2nd century AD that speak about sweetened chilled drinks made with ice. Their technique was to leave water in containers to freeze overnight in the desert. But, as with all things, the secrets of ice cream didn't stay hidden in Asia forever. It slowly made its way to Europe as the world expanded. Some legends say that it was brought to Europe on the backs of camels via the never-ending stream of Arab traders. But the more commonly held belief is that ice cream sorbets were first brought to Italy by Marco Polo after witnessing the process during his travels to Asia between 1271 and 1295. From there, it exploded into Italian culture, with the ever-present Di Medici family taking a particular interest in it. It was the famous Italian Duchess Catherine de' Medici who is credited with introducing ice cream to France in the mid-1500s. She was about to marry the Duke of Orleans, who would later become King Henry II. Upon her relocation to France for her marriage, she took a retinue of Italian chefs with her, and it was through them that the French courts were treated to their first tastes of gelato. Within a hundred years, it had jumped the channel to England, and the ruler at the time was King Charles I. He was reportedly so impressed by the frozen snow dessert that he wanted to make sure that it was for royals only and that it didn't get out to the public. His only way of ensuring this was to offer his private ice cream maker a pension of £500 a year just to keep the recipe a secret. In today's money, that's the equivalent of almost £62,000 or just over $80,000. 
Fast forward a few hundred years and ice cream has become a household favorite around the world. At the turn of the 20th century, people were still eating it as a gourmet treat, however, and it was savored slowly, from a bowl and always with a spoon. But this would all change just a few years later. It was the year 1904, and the World's Fair was getting ready to entertain the masses in the city of St. Louis. The fair was meant to honor the significance of the Louisiana Purchase, as well as the great strides made by Lewis and Clark's journey west. But it would come to be known as the birthplace of something far closer to home for all of us. Now, the story of the first ever ice cream cone seems to be shrouded in layer upon layer of mystery. There are at least eight different theories I can find that all claim to be the original moment when the cone was invented. But there's one story that seems to stand out amongst the rest. And so, for the sake of simple storytelling, that is the one I'll be sharing with you today. As with all good origin stories, this one begins as somewhat of an accident. A man by the name of Ernest A. Humwe was a Syrian immigrant to the United States and found himself manning a stall at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. He was preparing, making and cooking a Syrian sweet treat known as Zalabia. It's very similar in appearance to the classic Belgian or American waffles that we all know, but they are rolled out flat while still maintaining their distinctive grid pattern on the outside. The sun at the fair that year was scorching and the heat was making everyone there sweaty and uncomfortable. Naturally, the fairgoers searched for something to grant them a few moments respite from the heat and to help them cool down and ice cream seemed like the perfect solution. It just so happened that Ernest Humwee's stall was situated next to one of the fairground's 50 or so ice cream sellers whose business was booming. The ice cream vendor couldn't scoop fast enough to keep up with the demand, and as soon as one order was served, he was already back to scooping the next one. This was great business for him, but there was just one drawback to all of this. He didn't have enough clean glass dishes to serve his ice cream in. He couldn't stop to wash them, and he was fast running out. Hamwe saw what was happening next door to him when the brainwave hit. He wasn't selling his salabia anywhere near as fast as the ice cream next door, but he realized a way to help both himself and his fellow vendor. He grabbed a freshly cooked waffle and rolled it up so that one end of it was closed and the other end open, invitingly, for a scoop of refreshing ice cream. He handed this cone to the bewildered man next to him, who quickly realized what was happening. He scooped a great ball of ice cream into the open end and served it to the customer waiting in line. This was something entirely new, and the customer was a bit skeptical upon first glance. But as he bit into the side of the cone and took a mouthful of smooth ice cream and crunchy waffle cone together, his face told the whole story. Everyone behind him in the line saw his reaction and suddenly began clamoring to get their hands on their own rolled Zalabia cone filled with ice cream. Humwe rolled as fast as he could and after the few seconds it took for each one to cool, they were being passed across to the ice cream vendor to fill and pass to the customer. They became an instant hit at the fair and just a few years later, Humwe would go on to found the Cornucopia Waffle Company in 1910 and in later years, the Missouri Cone Company, and then the Western Cone Company. Well, he'd clearly found his calling. Around the same time as the World's Fair was happening, an entirely different part of ice cream history was also happening in America and abroad. At the time, 
it was considered unseemly for a woman to attend a restaurant without being escorted by a man. Women who dined alone were eyed with suspicion, and in one famous case in the heart of Manhattan's theater district, a woman by the name of Rebecca Israel was refused entry at a restaurant known as Cafe Boulevard. The owner, a man named Mr. Rosenfeld, had a strict policy against serving unaccompanied women. Rebecca Israel attempted to sue the man for discrimination, but the case was ultimately thrown out by the New York Supreme Court in 1903. It was because of discrimination like this that a new style of eatery sprung up all over town. These restaurants primarily served ice cream and were made to be friendly towards women dining alone or in the company of other women. While they didn't outright ban men from attending, they made sure to decorate the rooms in an overtly feminine style for the time. Plush drapery, puffy armchairs and marble fireplaces adorned the interiors, and they marketed these ice cream eateries as home-style dining rooms, which is where the name ice cream parlors came to be attached to them. Americans still use the title ice cream parlors today in certain areas, although the decor has significantly upgraded with the times. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra themed content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's triviality. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring 
all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. World War II seemingly had a deep attachment to the creamy sweetness of ice cream that ran deeper than a mere affinity for the dessert. There are many stories that have come out on both sides of the conflict about the role that ice cream played in the war. Just after World War II hit, Britain banned ice cream as sugar had become severely rationed and they needed to use it for items that were significantly less of a luxury. To add insult to injury, they suggested that people simply replace ice cream by freezing carrots and skewering them onto sticks. The United States, however, was having none of this nonsense and in fact increased their troops' weekly access to the frozen dessert. One of the more infamous stories about the American troops' love for ice cream comes right in the middle of the war. It was the year 1942 and the USS Lexington was sailing in the Pacific. At the time, the Lexington was the second largest aircraft carrier in the US Navy. It had a large crew that was needed to man the ship and keep it running, and this meant a large supply of food needed to be kept on board to feed all of them. One fateful day, as the aircraft carrier cut its way through the warm waters of the Pacific, the worst possible thing happened. A Japanese submarine had silently crept up on the vessel and fired torpedoes towards its hull. They struck with deadly force, ripping the metal apart below the waterline, thousands of gallons of water flooding the hull in seconds. The USS Lexington was on her way down. The crew on board knew exactly what to do. They had been drilled for just this set of circumstances. The commanding officers ran to their posts to instruct the sailors on how to abandon ship. But when they got there, the sailors were nowhere to be seen. The urgency to abandon ship found itself second to only one other pressing matter in each of the sailors' minds. Unfortunately for the commanding officers, everyone on board knew that there was an almighty stash of ice cream in the canteen freezer, and the sailors would not see it go down with the ship. Before releasing the lifeboats and abandoning ship, they broke into the freezer and began eating and grabbing as much ice cream as they could manage. It was pandemonium. Men were scooping handfuls of it into their helmets until they overflowed and then ran above deck, savoring the delicious treat as they lowered themselves into the Pacific Ocean. Then, just a year later, in 1943, the American Air Force heavy bomber crews discovered an ingenious way to make sure that they never ran out of ice cream. And the only way to ensure that was to make it themselves. They discovered that if they mixed the ingredients milk, cream, sugar and egg yolks into large buckets before each mission, they could then strap those buckets to the outside of the rear gunner's compartment. Then they would all climb into the plane and commence with their mission. While they were many thousands of feet up in the air, the temperature up there was freezing, and when combined with the rhythmic vibrations of the engines, and sometimes the machine guns, it created the perfect frozen ice cream churner. When they landed, the ice cream had set and was ready to be enjoyed. For the less fortunate soldiers on the winter front lines, they would have to improvise. It seems the best they could come up with was packing fresh snow into their helmets and then melting chocolate bars over the fire to pour over the snow. It apparently created a halfway decent chocolate sorbet, but nothing quite like the real thing. The obsession with ice cream only continued to grow in the wartime efforts, as by 1945, the US Navy spent over a million dollars converting an old concrete barge into a floating ice cream factory in the middle of the Pacific. 
the ship could churn out 10 gallons of ice cream every seven minutes and at its capacity could hold 2,000 gallons. They would sail to US Navy ships and deliver fresh ice cream to them if they didn't already have their own means of production. When the US Army caught wind of what the Navy was up to, they were determined not to be outdone. They constructed miniature ice cream factories all along the front lines and began delivering individual cartons to the soldiers hunkering down in the foxholes. It's also worth noting that these factories were merely a supplement to hundreds of millions of gallons of ice cream that was being manufactured abroad and shipped to the war effort. At its peak, they shipped more than 135 million pounds of dehydrated ice cream in a single year. And with that, I think it's safe to say that everyone's favorite frozen dessert has come rather a long way from water buffalo milk and rice being packed into some freshly fallen snow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fantastic History of Food. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Food History Pod, as well as checking out our Facebook page. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate you taking a moment to rate the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. And if you can, leave a review as well. I also have a Patreon account where you can support the show and get access to exclusive content, bonus episodes, and even the chance to choose the topic for an upcoming episode. But all of this is only for our Patreon subscribers. Everyone who donates or subscribes will also get a personal shout out from me on an upcoming episode. Check out our website where you can find transcripts, show notes, and references for each and every episode at foodhistorypodcast.com. 